Hi everyone, welcome back to Please Correlate. My name is Jenny and I'm a radiology trainee in the UK. These are my FRCR 2A revision notes. As always, I've used a variety of sources for this information, um, the details of which will be in the information section. And of course, as always, if you notice any errors or inaccuracies, please do let me know. Today we're going to be looking at paediatric gastrointestinal presentations and we'll basically work from the top down. So we'll start with esophageal atresia. So this is where you get an esophageal stump and the esophagus has not separated properly during embryological development from the trachea and they, this is because they start out as one structure and then split into two. The esophageal atresia is usually associated with a tracheoesophageal fistula and more than half of patients with tracheoesophageal fistulas uh, present with other abnormalities such as bacterial abnormalities. Um, I think I've mentioned bacterial previously but just to run through it briefly again now. So the V stands for vertebral segmentation abnormalities, the A is for anal atresia, the C is for cardiac abnormalities, the T is for tracheoesophageal fistula, the R is for renal abnormalities and the L is for limb abnormalities. On plain film imaging you might see a non-advancing or coiled NG tube. You may or may not see gas within the bowel depending on which type and we'll go through those in a second. And as I mentioned just now you can see other evidence of bacterial abnormalities. In utero, these patients may have polyhydramnios or the sonographer may be unable to see the infant's stomach. These patients may also present with pig bronchus or tracheomalacia. So there's a number of different types. Between looking on Radiopedia and Mandel and Granger and Allison's, they didn't seem to have much consensus as to the actual grading system for the different five types. So I basically just lift, listed them here. So the most common type encompassing the vast majority of patients is where you get a proximal esophageal atresia and a distal tracheal fistula with the sort of distal end of the esophagus. So you would see gas in the bowel, but you're not going to be advancing the NG tube any further. Other variations is where you get atresia with no fistula so there's no connection between the esophagus and the trachea, and obviously here you see no gases in the bowel. You can also get a form where you get both proximal and distal fistulas to the trachea, but you get an intervening esophageal atresia. So the proximal esophagus joins to the trachea, and the distal esophagus joins to the trachea, but the esophagus itself is not continuous. So here, patients will often get aspiration pneumonias, but again, you would see gas within the bowel. Another type is where you have a proximal tracheal fistula and a distal atresia. So here again, you'd get aspirations with no gas within the bowel. And then finally, you can get um, a complete esophagus, but you also get a tracheal fistula. This tends to present for the first time in slightly older children with recurrent aspirations. The clinical presentation, as I've mentioned already, is a neonate unable to swallow saliva or feed, being unable to advance any NG tube, or recurrent presentations with aspiration. You can also get gastric atresias, which present as a slightly more distal obstruction with non-bilious vomiting, and on x-ray you'd see a single bubble. Moving on to pyloric stenosis, so this is thickening of the muscle at the pyolorus. It's typically seen in infants about six weeks of age, but can be seen between the ages of one week and three months. These infants pre present with projectile vomiting, which is non-bilious and increases in frequency. 
and the infant is always hungry. These infants can be quite pulley and become alkalotic with hypochloremia. On examination, you might see a olive-shaped mass within the epigastrium or the right upper quadrant and visible gastric peristalsis. On ultrasound, you're looking for an apple core appearance, which is the thickened and elongated pylorus. So a single muscular wall should be less than four millimeters. The total width should be less than 12 millimeters and the canal length should be less than 19 millimeters. So obviously if all of these metrics are above this, then you are highly suspicious for pyloric stenosis. Moving on to neonatal bowel obstruction. So this occurs within the first two days of life and can be difficult to determine the exact nature of the bowel obstruction as babies do not show any household markings on plain film and you can only really attempt to differentiate between upper and lower uh, obstruction by the amount of bowel that's been affected. If you're seeing a double bubble appearance then the site of obstruction is likely uh, in the duodenum, typically a duodenal atresia. This is often associated with Down syndrome. If it's low GI, then you can attempt to get more information by doing a contrast enema. In duodenal atresia or stenosis, then you might see the extent of this again on contrast studies. Duodenal webs may not be picked up until the child starts eating more solid foods, as liquids can pass through the web, but solids have a bit more trouble. You might see a classic appearance of a windsock deformity. Moving on to meconium ileus. So the presentation is a putty-like feel on examination of the right side of the abdomen and the patient passes sticky meconium. There is a link to cystic fibrosis, so meconium ileus is seen with about in about 20% of patients with cystic fibrosis at birth, but it's also seen in infants with other pancreatic abnormalities. On ultrasound, you see echogenic stool, so a bright gut appearance. Um, you might see fetal ascites and thickened bowel walls. On the abdominal film, you might see the appearance of a volvulus or a local perforation or calcifications. The treatment is with water-soluble contrast enemas. Moving on to Hirschsprung's disease. So this is the most common cause of neonatal colonic obstruction. It is associated with Down syndrome. And essentially it's a segmental absence of myenteric plexus ganglion cells. This results in a lack of relaxivity of the bowel. It can also be termed aganglionosis. So the rectum is always affected and then the affected segment kind of continues proximally from distally, if that makes sense. Uh, you can get an ultra-short segment, which basically only affects the anus, but normally it's a short segment of the rectum or moving to the distal sigmoid colon, um, but you can have really long segments involving the transverse colon or very rarely that's involving the entire large bowel. It commonly occurs in males and, interestingly, in term infants, but it can present later. The majority of cases are detected by the age of five years. The abdominal film will show bowel obstruction. Fluoroscopy can help with the diagnosis and determining the length of the affected segment. You will get a cone segment, which will be the transition zone between the normal and abnormal bowel. The rectum will show a twitchy rectum sign or evidence of fasciculation. And in normal patients, the rectum is of larger caliber than the sigmoid, but in these patients, it's the other way around, so the sigmoid will be of la larger caliber to the rectum, as the rectum is unable to relax. Diagnosis is made formally with histology, 
and treatment is with resection of the affected segment. Moving on to ileotresia. So these patients may not present with symptoms initially until the end of the first week of life. And it's thought to be due to a vascular accident in utero where there is a resulting reduced vascular flow and that this is a segment of ischemia and the abdominal film will show distended bowel proximal to this. Moving on to colon of prematurity, which is also called small left colon, which is also called meconium plug syndrome. This is seen in premature infants and they present with abdominal distension and not passing meconium. It's caused by functional imm immaturity of the ganglion cells, which resolves over time. On the abdominal film, you might see an obstructive appearance. There might be a clear transition point within the bowel, so you'd see a, a clear change in caliber. And you might see meconium plugs as filling defect. Treatment is with a water-soluble contrast enema. Moving on to megacystis microcolon intestinal hypoperistalsis syndrome, also called burden syndrome. This is very rare and usually fatal within the first year of life. Majority of patients are female, and this is a congenital absence of bowel and bladder smooth muscle function. So you'd see sort of obstructive appearance of kidneys and of the bowel. Moving on to intersusception. So this is where the bowel telescopes inside itself. There are a couple of different types. So you, firstly, you can get ileo-ileal. These tend to be transient, and there's not usually much clinical concern for these. There is more concern for ileocecal intersusception, and this is because the vascular supply can be compromised. They don't tend to resolve spontaneously, and you can get resulting ischemia and necrosis and resulting perforation. Intersusceptions tend to be caused by a lead point. This could be a node or a diverticulum. In adults, of course, a malignancy is a differential. The presentation is usually in children more than three months of age. They present with colicky, intermittent abdominal pain. They draw up their knees. You can feel a right upper quadrant mass on palpation. And they pass current jelly stool, which is a mixture of blood and mucus. On the abdominal film, you might see an oblong soft tissue mass in the right upper quadrant or evidence of proximal obstruction. Fluoroscopy is the gold standard using a contrast enema and you see a coiled spring appearance. On ultrasound, you might see a target or donut sign or the false kidney sign. If you're scanning someone and they have a donut sign diameter of more than two centimeters, then it's likely to be ileocolic. If it has a hyperechoic core, that is the mesenteric fat. And again, if it has a length of more than three centimeters, it's likely ileocolic. The treatment is with reduction using water-soluble medium or with air. And if it fails to reduce by insufflation, then the child goes to surgery. You can do CT imaging, but this is obviously mainly performed with adults. And here you see bowel within bowel appearance. Moving on to malrotation. So this is the abnormal fixation of the root of the mesentery, and it allows for volvulus, especially if the base is particularly narrow or particularly long. So the presentation can be quite variable. It does often present early in life, but can present in adulthood, and you do tend to see bile-stained vomiting. On the abdominal film, it could be normal. You might see signs of ischemia. You might see a right-sided small bowel and a left-sided colon. Obviously, as I said before, you don't see the house markings in babies, so this makes it difficult to tell. Or you might see signs of duodenal obstruction. On ultrasound, you might see inversions of the positions of the SMA and SMV. Normally, the SMA is on the left and the SMV is on the right. Diagnosis can be made with a contrast meal, where you might see the DGA flexure on the right of the midline, the small bowel to the right, or duodenal dilatation or obstruction. 
Ideally, in a normal patient, you will see the DJA flexor on the left of the left vertebral body pedicle, and D2 and D3 should be posterior in the retroperitoneal position. Treatment for malrotation is that the bowel has to be surgically fixed in a non-rotated position. Moving on to appendicitis. The presentation is classically central to right iliac fossa pain. The patients will present with temperature, anorexia, and raised inflammatory markers. On ultrasound, you might see a blind-ending tubular structure, which is dilated with thick walls and more than six millimeters across. You need to ensure when you're scanning the patient, you see the entirety of the appendix uh, to make sure there's no site of perforation. The appendix will be non-compressible. Other signs might be bright surrounding fat, inflammatory nodes, reduced peristalsis of the adjacent bowel and free fluid. On an abdominal film, you might see an appendicolus, an ileus, and absence of gas in the right iliac fossa. As with adults, children can get inguinal hernias. Moving on to IBD, approximately a third of patients diagnosed with IBD are diagnosed in childhood. As with adults, endoscopy and biopsy is a gold standard for diagnosis. Typical features you might see in IBD would be bowel wall thickening, abdominal folds, mesenteric edema with engorged mesenteric vessels, otherwise called comb sign. You might see evidence of ulceration, although this can be difficult, and hyperemia, which is early mucosal, then transmural enhancement. You might see reactive lymph nodes. In Crohn's, you might see skip lesions, and you might see thickened bowel without enhancement and this may be due to chronic inflammation. You might see fistulas as matted loops of bowel with tethering and hyperemia. Differentiating features between Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So in Crohn's, 15% have large bowel involvement, whereas in ulcerative colitis, it's mostly rectal and large bowel, although you can have backwash ileitis. Crohn's has skip lesions, whereas ulcerative colitis is continuous. Crohn's affects males and females equally, whereas ulcerative colitis affects more males than females. You tend to see more in the way of colonic thickening in Crohn's than in ulcerative colitis, and you get more perineal involvement in Crohn's associated conditions-wise. So Crohn's is associated with pancreatitis, hepatic abscesses, gallstones, and cachexia. Ulcerative colitis is associated with primary sclerosing cholangitis. Moving on to anorectal malformations, so you can get a imperforate anus. This can be either high or low. If it's low, then it's below the puborectalis sling, and you get an associated perineal fistulas. The treatment for this is a single-stage perineal anaplasty. You can get a high imperforate anus in a male. This will be above the puborectalis sling, and it's associated with posterior urethral or bladder fistulas and again is associated with bacterial abnormalities or lumbosacral abnormalities. If it's a high anus presentation in a female patient, then it's associated with vaginal fistulas. The treatment for these high-level presentations is with colostomy and repair. Ultrasound can be used in these patients to help determine the level. Moving on to necrotizing enterocolitis. This is the most common GI emergency in neonatal patients and affects 1 in 10 babies born weighing less than 1.5 kilograms or born earlier than 28 weeks, but it does still occur in some term infants. 
on ultrasound you might see hyperemia and thick walled bowel but then eventually you see reduced vascularity and thin walled bowel with potential perforation such as free fluid and gas on the abdominal film you might see the sentinel loop which is non-changing bowel gas pattern you might see dilated loops of bowel and evidence of perforation signs of pneumatosis and portal venous gas and finally you can get mechal diverticulum which is the omphalomesenteric duct remnant this duct remnant connects the yolk sac to the embryonic midgut by the umbilicus it tends to be seen in the mid to distal ileum and there is the apparent rule of twos which is it affects two percent of the population is two feet from the ileocecal valve and becomes symptomatic normally prior to the age of two years. It can be a lead point for intersusception and can present with a GI bleed if it contains gastric mucosa, which about half of them do, and it can be seen on the Technetium 99M imaging. In adults, you can get mechal diverticulitis or small bowel obstruction, and you can get an umbilico-ileal fistula, which is where unfortunately you might ha the patient might experience feces passing through the umbilicus. Okay, that's everything for this episode. Hopefully you guys found it useful. Uh, next episode will be on pediatric genitourinary presentations. I'll see you next time.